0: Hello and welcome to the second part of my lecture series COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Yesterday we looked at some general issues with epidemiological modelling. The lack of a proper biological understanding of the disease being modelled, the circularity in estimating the reproduction number from the number of cases and then predicting the number of cases from the reproduction number, the cascading estimates within estimates, and assumptions within assumptions of the models, some of which are not even, consistently, uh, not even consciously identified and accounted for by the epidemiologist, the problems with data, and so on. Today, we will turn from this abstract discussion of epidemiology to an analysis of one of the most influential models in the world for COVID-19. This is what came to be known as the Imperial College Report from the University of that name in London. This report (coughs) was prepared not by the Imperial College alone, but jointly by a group of disease modeling institutions, including a World Health Organization body called the WHO Centre for Infectious Disease Modeling. So the WHO is among those who wrote this report and bears as much responsibility for it as the Imperial College. Professor Neil Ferguson, a British epidemiologist from the Imperial College, led this group. He was also advising the British government on COVID-19 and has been a consultant to the WHO for many years. There were several reports, starting January this year, from the Ferguson-led COVID-19 response team. I'm going to call them the COVID experts group. Of their reports, the one which burst onto the world stage was dated March the 16th. This report predicted that if COVID 19 was allowed to spread unchecked, 510,000 would die in the United Kingdom and 2.2 million in the United States of America. This report came on the heels of an apparent change of heart on the part of the UK government in deciding to take stronger public measures against COVID-19 than it had taken so far. The March 16th report seems to have been an attempt to explain the change in policy. It says, I quote, Here we present the results of epidemiological modelling which has informed policy making in the UK and other countries in recent weeks. But what might have been a rather dull domestic matter for the UK captured the world's imagination like nothing else since the Beatles. Within days, almost the entire world was in lockdown. From India to South Africa to the USA, all work was stopped, businesses closed, travel banned, and people were instructed to stay strictly within their homes until the storm had passed. No one knew when the world ground to a halt. Except for epidemiologists, mathematicians, and data analysts. From New Delhi to New York, anyone who crunched numbers for a living was churning out modeled projections for COVID-19 and giving them to governments and journalists or simply publishing them on social media to, ironically for the subject, viral interest. They predicted nothing less then millions dying, illustrated graphically with brightly colored exponential curves, plotting deaths doubling upon deaths, screeching upwards in a matter of days. The sight of that exponential line was like deaths leaping at you from the very pages in your hands. <clears throat> Next to these projected scenarios were the flattened curves of lockdown. They rose but gently, like the rolling hills of England, only so high only so high as the straight black or red line showing the point of a country's hospital or ventilator capacity. That straight line would save us from disaster and we had to stay under it by locking down at home to stop the spread of disease. This was how we would flatten the curve. It sounds good, but does it really add up? To find out, we need to follow the epidemiologists as they make their calculations. Central to the notion of flattening the curve is the epidemiologist's theory that if the reproduction number or R is at a value below one, the disease peters out. And I explained yesterday the R, uh, the reproduction number, is said to be the number of people on average that one infected person in the population could go on to infect. (coughs) So, (coughs) excuse me. Central to the notion of flattening the curve is the epidemiologist theory that if the reproduction number or R is at a value below 1, the disease peters out. So long as the R is at or above the value of 1, it keeps spreading through the community. Disease control therefore, according to epidemiologists, requires public measures that would reduce the R value to below (laughs) 1. In a paper written in 2004 called Factors That Make Infectious Disease Outbreak Controllable in the journal PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Neil Ferguson and colleagues argue that the reproduction number is especially useful when studying an emerging pathogen because it can be readily estimated from, quote, the data collected from the first few hundred people infected in a novel disease outbreak. Uh, All the papers that I refer to here are are on my blog uh, with links and you can access them. So please do have a look at that um, after we're done here. Right, so what Neil Ferguson and colleagues argue in their paper in 2004 is that uh, the reproduction number is uh, an extremely useful uh, measure uh, for studying a new, a novel disease, because because the data collected from the first few hundred people in, uh, uh, infected in a, a novel disease outbreak can uh, readily allow you to estimate it. <clears throat> but in reality, the Ferguson-led COVID experts group found that calculating the reproduction number for COVID-19 was not so easy at all. To estimate the reproduction number they first needed to estimate the number of cases in Wuhan as at that time that was the only known place of outbreak but they immediately ran into difficulties they didn't believe they didn't believe that the figures of the chinese government were reliable and so they were faced with the problem of having to estimate the number of cases themselves they decided to do this by looking at the people with covid-19 who had travelled out of Wuhan to other countries by mid-January. At this time, this amounted to the impressive number of precisely three. Three. So based on just three cases, the COVID experts group ran up some models and on January the 17th, put out a report saying that they estimated about 1,700 cases in Wuhan. But days later, they discovered that they have been wrong. <clears throat> they'd been wrong because they'd missed some of the cases, some of these exported cases, and uh, they, ha- you know, they had missed more than half of the exported cases. The correct number, it turned out, was seven and not three. So on the 22nd of January, the COVID experts group took out a revised report, changing their estimate to 4,000 cases. So they've gone from 1,700 to 4,000 cases. That's more than double. And uh, based on these uh, seven exported cases that they've seen. Now, a couple of days later, January the 25th, on the basis of these estimated 4,000 cases in Wuhan, the COVID experts group took out a report in which they estimated the reproduction number for COVID-19 at 2.6 in a range of 1.5 to 3.5. The problem with this is that even assuming the COVID experts group estimate of cases in Wuhan was correct. And we'll see later that it was not it was off by the tens of thousands. The R derived from these cases by them of 2.6 in a range of 1.5 to 3.5 is simply incoherent. Let me tell you why. According to Neil Ferguson's own earlier work, it's a paper called Strategies for Mitigating an Influenza Pandemic published in the journal Nature in 2006. What they say is that a reproduction number of 1.7 signifies a moderate rate of transmission, while a reproduction number of 2 signifies a high one. The lower end of the COVID experts group R at 1.5 is below moderate rates of transmission. Their central estimate 2.6 is just above the threshold R for high rate 2.5 they had said. And the upper end at 3.5 is miles above the high transmission threshold. Okay, now um, I'm going to pause here to show you some graphics because a friend of mine told me that uh, this, these lectures are, are very dull and uh, it's too long and that uh, nobody is going to uh, pay any attention, they're just going to be bored and um, the thing is that uh, you, know, you, you can't do science without being willing to be a bit bored, okay, <laughs> that's just a fact. Uh, of course, it's magical, but uh, th- th- there is a process, I've, you know, maybe you can't do anything without being a bit bored and, you know, doing the drudge work. And um, and I mean, you know, I'm confident that uh, people will engage with this. So the, the reason why I have taken uh, the trouble to get into this and uh, to try to reach out to all of you is um, because, uh, you know, I'm worried about what's going on. And I'm, I'm sure that you are too in your own way and uh my conclusion from all the research um is that uh you know we we've really got it wrong. this affects our lives so intimately, it affects our children, it affects our parents, you know everyone around us and um so so we really need to engage you know with this and um uh, anyway so um here goes with with my graphics, okay I don't even know if this is going to show properly, but so you have your first our estimate, which is at uh, 1.5 to 2.6, the central estimate, uh, and 3.5, the the outer estimate. Okay, I I just hope that this gets reversed while you're seeing, otherwise I don't know what I'm going to do, but maybe at least this makes it interesting. Okay, now the thing is that according to Neil Ferguson's earlier paper, um, 1.5 is below moderate rates. Okay, 2.6 is just above the high rate, okay, which he said was 2.5 and 3.5 is, is miles high, okay, so what what you're looking at here is that you're looking at three entirely different epidemics, three different epidemics based from one estimate of R and, you know, I mean, that makes no sense, okay, you don't have to be intimidated by numbers and science and, and all that to to figure out that uh, this just doesn't make any sense because what this means is that the COVID experts group began with an R that was in a range that gave you three entirely different epidemics. Low, high and are you kidding high? Okay. Now in order to see this immediately, you'd have to be an epidemiologist. The only people who could have pointed out this confusion in the numbers were the epidemiologists themselves. They should have started pointing out the limitations of any modelling for COVID-19 right from the start when problems with estimating the number of cases in Wuhan emerged. At this point, they should have directed policymakers to look elsewhere for answers as the situation did not lend itself to good modelling, assuming there is such a thing. So, it is just not good enough for some to claim as many uh, supporters of Neil Ferguson and other epidemiologists do, that scientists don't decide policy, and they only present the science. Yes, they only present the science, but they, and only they, can alert the non-scientists to the inconsistencies, contradictions, and untested or unverifiable assumptions in their work. But the epidemiologists did not do so, they allowed people to believe that there was a clear signal from their calculations when in fact, right from the start, there was not. Now, even though the WHO collaborating Centre for Infectious Disease Modeling was part of the COVID experts group, which estimated the R which I just showed you of 2.6 in a range of 1.5 to 3.5 on the 25th of January. A month later, on January 28th, the WHO confirmed a much lower R in a range of 2 to 2.5 in a joint mission report with China. At this point, the WHO ought to have disclosed. And explained why it had revised its estimate of R from the earlier one in the Imperial College report of January 25th, but this was never done, and this is something that the Who should be asked to explain. And uh, I'm going to show you another graphic. Okay, right. So, <clears throat> so this is the Who-China joint mission report. The R that they said is between two and 2.5, uh, which is way down. Way down uh, from uh, the report that a WHO modeling uh, institute itself gives you uh, just a month before of 1.5 to 3.5 with a central estimate of 2.6. Okay, and this is for the same period uh, in China, right? Okay, now. Two weeks after the WHO-China joint mission report that I just showed you, on March the 16th, the COVID experts group also changed their estimate, uh, this time to 2.4 in a range of 2 to 2.5. Hang on, don't lose me. I've got another graphic for you. Um, Here goes. (laughs) Okay, so second R estimate. Okay, your second R R estimate now, the second one is 2.5. 2.4, 2.6, okay, and uh, this is down from the earlier estimate which was uh, 1.5 to 3.5 with a central estimate of 2.6, right, okay. Um, Now, how do they get this change? Uh, They say that this revision is based on FITs to the early growth rate of the disease in Wuhan remember what i said to you about fitting in yesterday's lecture okay you keep changing your r estimate uh, depending on uh, the data that is given to you right so here so so what they are saying Is that this uh, second revision of the R is based on fits to the early growth rate of the disease in Wuhan? Now, their earlier rate, okay, of January 25th was also based on a fit to their then estimate of Wuhan cases. You recall, I just told you, you know, they said it's 1700, then they said it's 4000, and then based on that, they calculated their R. So, This reference to a new fit to Wuhan cases tells us that the COVID experts group had had changed their minds yet again about the numbers of cases in Wuhan in January, but they don't tell us what the new estimate of cases is. Okay, so now we have a situation where in total, you have three different estimates of cases by the COVID experts group for the same period in Wuhan, one of which is unstated and um, I'm going to show you another graphic okay so this is what it is three different estimates of cases in wuhan in january okay right um <clears throat> the COVID experts group new estimate of r doesn't last wrong 10 days later in a new report dated march the 26th they again revised their r to three in a range of 2.4 to 3.3 graphic again Here you go. Third R estimate. Hmm? 2.4 to 3.3 with a central estimate of 3. And this is how it's changed. Just before they said it was 2 to 2.6 in a central estimate of 2.4. I mean, look at how their central estimate from 10 days ago has now become on the lower end. All right. I mean, you don't need to uh, have a maths degree to figure out that uh, there's something wonky going on here. Okay. And and then, you know, uh, just a few days before, uh, they were saying that it's 1.5 uh, to 3.5 in a range of, uh, with a central estimate of 2.6. Okay. Um. Okay. So here you go. Right. Yeah. So uh, what I'm saying is that uh, observe how drastically the reproduction number keeps changing. The reproduction number in the March 30th report is not even in the same range as the r in the march 16th report the march 16th report had a range of two to wait maybe i should have this graphic again maybe my friend was right about graphic okay look so march 16th you've got a range over here this is march 16th um of 2 to 2.6 and um now you have uh, this higher range okay all right no no no. hang on a minute <laughs> so after this uh so so this brings you to the 26th of march right okay now um 4 days later march 30th there's a fourth revision of the r okay and and this time the r goes uh, to a range of uh, to uh, uh, 3.87 3.87 in a range of 3.01 to 4.66 okay you know i mean <clears throat> there's no relationship between <laughs> any of these and it's all supposed to be based on the same epidemic the same cases in the same place Okay, so uh, what, I, what I was trying to tell you is that, uh, look at this, look at you, you have March 16th, you say 2 to 2.6, okay, and now March 30th, you're saying 3.01 to 4.44, uh, 4, 4. Oh, that should be 4.44, 4, 4, okay, um, sorry, 4.44 <laughs> 4, 4, uh, uh, is your range, I mean, it's not even in the same ballpark. And, you know, I mean, no explanation is given for why the R has changed over here for the fourth time, okay? Uh, There's no explanation in the March 30th report. Uh, It appears to be the result of using different equations for the modeling. And if this is the case, there's no explanation for why the model was changed or what the implication of this change might be on the COVID experts' group's earlier estimates. In this way, in the space of two weeks, I think I've got another graphic here. Yeah, yeah, that's right, I do. In the space of two weeks, Okay, in the second half of March, the COVID experts group has changed their initial R estimate thrice. Okay, taking their total number of revisions of the initial R to four if you include the first estimate, which was made in the January 25th report. Okay, so this is this is your graphic, all right? So the R estimate changes three times in two weeks and uh, four times overall since January. Okay. <clears throat> Um, These are uh, the halfway-reasoned and uh, ever-changing estimates based on which the world went into lockdown. Central to the logic of the flatten the curve theory was the question of ventilator demand. This was a key parameter for estimating the threshold below which COVID-19 infections had to be suppressed. You would have thought that there would be careful analysis behind the estimation of ventilator demand. But in the March 16th report, the COVID experts group seems to have simply cast about among some English doctors to get a fix on ventilator demand. This is what the report says. It says that an estimated 30% of those hospitalized would need ventilators based on a, quote, personal communication, unquote, from someone called Professor Nicholas Hart. Okay, so you know, I mean, this is the chaotic and ad hoc. You're just calling out people. How many? How many on ventilators, Professor? Thirty percent, right? Thirty percent. Okay, so this is the chaotic and ad hoc manner in which the COVID experts group has estimated ventilator demand, which is the central parameter for their recommendation of suppression measures. And You know, these epidemiologists do other stuff. Like, I've been reading all these reports, and they'll say, Okay, so I make an estimate of whatever you know, q for x5 for something, and they'll say uh, this is consistent with uh, other estimates done uh, by other modelers, and they'll reference it. You know, uh, I, I don't know what this is proving. You know, I mean, uh, if Firstly, you know, if your result is consistent with someone else's, then what is the meaning of your result? You should just use the other person's paper, right? And, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just using each other. Uh, you know, I, I found five, he found five, so now the world is five, okay? I mean, it's just, it is rubbish. And do not, do not allow the maths to intimidate you, okay? The problem is that, you know, maths teachers tend to be really scary and we carry that memory with us, okay? But we've got to let it go alright because you know numbers are just numbers they're just like symbols given to something and uh, you've got to question them and if they don't make sense to you and somebody is is, is stopping every aspect of your life you know it's scaring the heck out of your parents you know parents taught us to be brave and now they're, they're looking so scared and vulnerable so somebody is doing that to you telling you it's because of a number you ask you are uh, you question the number you say i don't understand Okay, you know saying I don't understand is the scariest thing that you can say to someone who you think is cleverer than you. Just ask them to explain, please explain. Okay. Right. So, um, so yeah, so they call up Professor Nicholas Hart and he tells them, yeah, 30%, you know, put on 30% and they've got 30% ventilator demand, uh, you know, of those hospitalized and then it gets more interesting. Death followed ventilators into the COVID experts group's calculations in a new way that might not have been connected with COVID-19 at all. It is well known that ventilators are associated with a high rate of death 30 to 50 percent. This is because people on ventilators are prone to getting VAP ventilator acquired pneumonia and dying of that. In the March 16th report, our diligent modelers seem to have included in the the 50% mortality associated with ventilators into their calculation. They say, and I quote, based on expert clinical opinion, we assume that 50% of those in critical care will die. So, do you see how this may have inflated their death figures? Right. The thing is, that after losing quite a few covid-19 patients to ventilators, very soon, very soon, within days, okay, we'll come to that, doctors in the west revised their treatment protocols and held off on ventilator use with improving outcomes. In fact, as we'll see later in this discussion, ventilators left the picture in Europe and the USA almost as quickly as they had entered it. Many of the surged critical care units in the UK and USA were wound down without seeing any patients. Okay, without seeing any patients. And we all went into lockdown to save the ventilators. There was also (coughs) a fundamental lack of consistency in the COVID expert group's approach. Key determinants were simply discarded, thrown away without explanation as matters progressed. For example, when the COVID experts group recommended suppression in their report of March 16th, this was defined by them as a combination of measures in which the workplace contact was to be reduced by only 25%, and the rest of social distancing was for settings outside of the home, work, and school, outside of the homework and school so this report was really calling for the suspension of social and leisure activities for which it recommended 75% reduction and not of work you know of workplace or economic activity which was to be maintained at 25% suppression in the march 16th report the famous imperial college report was explicitly described as a measure and i quote short of a complete lockdown which additionally prevents people from going to work unquote Other suppression measures recommended were isolation at home of sick people for seven days, voluntary home quarantine by household members of those falling ill for 14 days, (coughs) home isolation of the elderly above 79 years of age, schools and 25% of universities were to be kept open. And they said an interesting thing. They said that home isolation would result in an increase in household contact rates by 25 to 50% okay so um but they don't explain how this goes into their calculation how do you then weigh up reducing it in one place and putting it you know increasing it in the other anyway all of these measures are significantly less than a complete lockdown and in the march 16th report they say that these measures are sufficient to contain the epidemic by driving the R down to below one but Ten days later, in their March 26th report, the COVID experts group set a far more severe suppression parameter of a blanket 75% reduction in contact. There's no explanation for why they abandoned their earlier recommendation about keeping workplace activity at 75% or the effects on their calculations of the increase in household contacts by 25 to 50% owing to stay at home, which was set out in the earlier March 16th report. All these finer points were forgotten and they predicted 7 billion infections globally and 40 million deaths in the unmitigated scenario. Some very basic questions arise here. What is the meaning of a 75% or any percent of reduction in contact anyway? On what basis are you saying that keeping people at home results in this 75% reduction of contact? What about the contact which continues for the provision of essential services? In some countries, even in some cities in the developing world, just the number of essential and grocery services, along with the activity required to avail of them, would amount to contact levels equivalent to full contact levels of many European cities or even entire countries. No explanation. We are thinner and thinner on explanation, and that seems to be normal in the world of epidemiology. Right. <clears throat> Four days after their March 26th report, the COVID experts group come out with yet another report. This time to prove that suppression measures are working to drive the R down. In this report dated March the 30th, the COVID experts group say what I explained in the last lecture that... They belatedly say this, that epidemic parameters cannot be inferred accurately from the case data. What they say is, and I quote, estimating reproduction numbers for SARS-CoV-2 presents challenges due to the high proportion of infections not detected by the health system and regular changes in testing policies resulting in different proportions of infections being detected over time and between countries. Most countries so far only have the capacity to test a small portion of suspected cases and tests are reserved for severely ill patients or for high risk groups, example contacts of cases. Looking at case data therefore gives a systemically biased view of trends. Okay, this is from the Imperial College report from the epidemiologists. Looking at case data therefore Gives a systemically biased view of trends. This is correct. This is what we discussed yesterday. But in many of their own preceding reports, the COVID experts group have estimated several things using case data, which they're now saying is unreliable and giving a systemically systemically biased view, okay. In the March 16th report, their case fatality rate and infection fatality rates were calculated using reported case data. On March 24th, they came up with a report arguing that China's containment policies worked to drive down the R based on Chinese case data. In their report on March 25th, they had referred to case data as a key determinant of transmission rates. This is what they said. "Quote." if a clear downwards trend is observed in the numbers of new cases that would indicate that control measures and behavioral changes can substantially reduce the transmissibility of 2019 ncov right so i mean there's just no doubt that uh, they've been using case data throughout and uh, public opinion And experts and governments all over the world had been influenced to adopt extreme lockdown measures based on these case number based calculations. And now the COVID experts group, the Imperial College and WHO infectious disease modeling team are now saying that all of this was based on the wrong measure, unreliable case data. At this point, the COVID experts group should have retracted everything uh, that it, it had said in its earlier reports. But being epidemiologists, they felt themselves under no imperative to retract anything just because their assumptions for it were utterly wrong. No no need to retract anything, no need to explain. They just decided to change the determinant in their calculation from case data to death data and moved smoothly on. They say, and I quote, an alternative way to estimate the cause of the epidemic is to back calculate infections from observed deaths, unquote. But the thing is, they've changed now from case data to death data. But the thing is that death data is subject to the same biases and uncertainties from reporting lags and definitional disputes as our case data. We saw this with the debates over death by versus with COVID-19 and the belated discovery of deaths in nursing homes in Europe, the UK and the USA. At the time of the COVID experts group's reports of late March, Um, which relied on mortality data, many countries like Italy, the UK and France had not yet begun including their nursing home and other ex-hospital deaths in their daily death reports. On March 23rd, the Mayor of Bergamo in Northern Italy, which was a big epicentre, the first one in in Europe, uh, had said that the death toll may be four times that which had been reported at the time. The United Kingdom began including care home deaths in its daily mortality reports only a month later, on April the 29th. So, there was was nothing more reliable about this death data that the COVID experts group were looking at than the case data. But they simply say in the March 30th report that reported deaths are likely to be more reliable. How are you going to decide the connection between deaths and cases? Modeling again and fitting. They say, and I quote, in this report, we fit a Bayesian mechanistic model of the infection cycle to observe deaths in 11 European countries, inferring plausible upper and lower bounds of the total populations infected, case detection probabilities and the reproduction number over time, unquote. Another of the COVID expert group's estimates that kept changing was the doubling rate. That is the rate at which they said cases would double over time. On February the 15th, a month before their alarming report of March the 16th, the COVID experts group estimated the doubling time to be seven days. They said this was based on genetic information about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 disease. One gets a sense that all through January and February, the COVID experts group were fairly confident about their calculations. But then in mid-March, there was a sudden awakening when cases in Europe exploded, doubling much faster than had been estimated by them, <clears throat> predicted by them. In the first week of March, alarming reports from northern Italy began to come in of people falling ill in massive numbers. Hospitals and morgues were said to be completely overwhelmed. The obituary section of the Lecco di Bergamo, the main newspaper of Bergamo in northern Italy, had expanded from half a section in late February to 3 pages, then to 6 pages, and then to 10 pages end-to-end by March 10th. The COVID experts group hints at having got a shock from Italy in its report of March the 16th when it says that its conclusions had only, quote, been reached in the last few days based on the experience in Italy and the UK, and that previous planning estimates had, quote, assumed half the demand now estimated, unquote. So, you know, I mean, they've clearly been jolted out of whatever they thought uh, was going on here. Uh, Based on this, they revised their doubling rate to five days. Uh, They said, uh, based on the observed cumulative number of deaths in Great Britain or the US seen by 14th March. But remember how they kept changing their R. So even this seems not to have matched the pattern of the epidemic in the following days, 10 days later. In their March 26 report, the COVID experts group again revised their doubling rate to three days, huh? seven, five, three, to three days based on, they said, the observed deaths in Europe. It is based on this three day doubling rate of deaths that the COVID experts group calculated their third new hour in the March 26 report of three in a range of 2.4 to 3.3. And as discussed earlier, four days later, on March 30th, they again revised their starting hour. estimate a fourth time to 3.87. In the March 30th report, the COVID experts group sets out to prove that the lockdowns, which by then had been imposed in various European countries in the previous two to three weeks, were driving down the starting R as they had predicted, R0. So the increase, uh, so, 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 so this is what happens. They want to prove that, uh, you know, we said that suppression would work and now the R has indeed gone down. Hmm? So in this report, by increasing their initial R from 3 to 3.87, it had the great effect of showing an even larger decrease in the R. 64% declared the COVID experts group proudly than if the lower initial R of 3 in the report of 4 days back had been used. In order to really judge whether the COVID experts group modeling was working, they should have given us a comparison of the observed outbreak pattern with the one predicted in the earlier reports. It's very simple. But they didn't do that. They came up with a new model based on observed deaths. they said that this model was cross-validated Because when they ran it after withholding three days of data, the modeled forecast of deaths for those three days was the same as the observed deaths. Okay, so they're saying it's cross validated because when we withhold three days, we get the same three days that happened that actually happened, the same three days of of deaths. But given that the model itself was fitted to produce the observed (laughs) deaths. But given that the model itself was fitted to produce the observed deaths, this is hardly surprising. You don't need to be an epidemiologist to predict that an epidemic pattern will hold for three days into the future when your model was built on the epidemic pattern. Okay, not much is likely. Not much is likely to change in just three days. So, using this new model, the COVID experts group say that their back calculation from deaths shows that the reproduction number has slowed. Even assuming that the R has slowed, how are you going to link this slowing down to the suppression measures? What do you think they did? They're epidemiologists, they assume it. (laughs) They say, I quote, our methods assume that changes in the reproduction number, a measure of transmission, are an immediate response to interventions being implemented rather than broader gradual changes in behavior. So, they're discounting any changes in behaviour apart from government-mandated stay at home as being the driver of the R. But, you know, what does that mean? Does this mean that they're not accounting for the normal behaviour of sick people? Seriously ill people would, by reason of their illness, their infirmity, sharply reduce their activities and levels of contact with others in the normal course regardless of containment measures. Is the COVID experts group here assuming full levels of activity and contact? Can they do this? What about all the people who've been put onto ventilators? These are questions that the COVID experts group should be asked because the natural case isolation that occurs when people fall very ill is an accepted phenomena even in epidemiological work. Even Neil Ferguson's own previous work concedes this. Writing in 2008, in a paper called Modeling Targeted Layered Containment of an Influenza Pandemic in the United States, in the journal PNAS, Ferguson and colleagues analysed three different models for the containment of pandemics. And each model assumed that even in the absence of intervention, clinical disease affects individual contact-related behaviour. This paper also talks about the concept of pathogenicity which is the probability of developing symptoms if infected and the natural history of the pathogen that is the course that it takes in the host body. But there's nothing to show that these effects were factored into the COVID experts group's calculations of billions of cases in the unmitigated scenario. Apart from the question of a spreading disease automatically resulting in reduced levels of contact The COVID experts group also fails to consider other reasons that might account for the claimed reduction in the R, such as the virus losing potency as it transmits, or finding fewer people that are vulnerable to its worst effects. Viral burnout has been noticed in other diseases by scientists, even though there is as yet no scientific explanation for it. Regarding the number of cases, the COVID experts group says in this same report of March 30th that the number of daily infections estimated by our model drops immediately after an intervention as we assume that all infected persons become immediately less infectious through the intervention. All infected persons become immediately less infectious through the intervention. But how can they make an assumption of immediate decline in infectiousness with a disease having an infectious period of several days and even weeks. Clinical studies of some COVID-19 patients show viral shedding, which is a measure of infectiousness, for several weeks after the onset of symptoms. So, you know, these are the types of questions that we need to be asking the epidemiologists. Even if we are to believe that the R has declined because of suppression measures, It has come so close to the critical value of one very quickly, considering that in their earlier reports the COVID experts group were looking at timelines of five and eight months with the epidemic taking several months to subside, even with the highest level of suppression measures. The closer you look at the COVID expert groups work, the more incoherent it becomes. Even when claiming success with suppression measures having drastically driven down the R in Europe, the COVID experts group says that suppression measures will have to remain in place indefinitely under a va- until a vaccine or medicines are discovered. Otherwise, they say, the epidemic will re-emerge on the lifting of measures. Quote, this is what they say. The more successful a strategy is at temporary suppression, the larger the later epidemic is predicted to be in the absence of vaccination due to lesser buildup of herd immunity. But this contradicts their starting premise that the point of suppression is to drive the R to below the value of one, at which point the disease will peter out. The whole argument of the COVID experts group for adopting drastic suppression measures instead of mitigation ones was that only suppression could drive the R below 1. If the theory of R is correct, then why should you have to wait for vaccines or drugs to be discovered? It should be enough to wait till the R is below 1. But after claiming that the R has been successfully driven down, they now say that this has resulted in fewer infections and hence there's no herd immunity but what's herd immunity it's a theory of epidemiologists okay like it's one of those it's one of those bad you know weird theories what i've been able to make out is that actually it can't, it doesn't come from the study of disease it comes from you know vaccinations and they found that like after you have a certain threshold of vaccinations you don't find the disease uh, in the community anymore okay so herd immunity is a theory of epidemiologists according to which if you have a certain number of persons in a community who are immune to a disease the disease will die out as it will no longer be able to transmit robustly in the community but developing herd immunity requires exposure to the disease which is the opposite of the covid experts group strategy of repression of suppression the whole point of the covid experts group strategy was to combat disease by lowering exposure none of this makes any sense we find ourselves at the end of march and about 3 weeks of suppression measures in the position of according to the Uh, epidemiologists, having apparently driven the R down to close to one in a fraction of the time that was anticipated, but no closer to the end of the epidemic than when we started listening to the epidemiologists. Okay, I'll stop here from now. Thank you so much for your attention. Uh, Today we looked at the confusion of the epidemiologists and tomorrow we look at the utter chaos utter chaos and confusion in the mind of the WHO, which led us to adopt the wrong strategies for dealing with COVID-19. Today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog, covidlectures.blogspot.com, where the full paper and part one of the lecture from yesterday has already been published. See you tomorrow, 7pm India time, 2.30pm London time, 9.30am New York time on Facebook live for another round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy science, woeful ethics, thank you.